0: job, kiddos. Good job, team. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's open to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Um, I uh, typically, we do an intro, read the Bible, then pray. But as I've just been sitting there thinking about this passage and kind of trying to prepare my own heart and mind, I just want to stop for a little bit. Um, and I want us, I'm, I'm just going to give you a minute before we jump into what uh these, these verses. I want to give you a minute to, to ask God to prepare your heart and your mind for what this passage is going to call us towards. Um, and I want to ask that you would resolve now on the front end to be obedient to what the Spirit is going to work in you as we hear the Word of God. Um, pray for wisdom, that God would help you to discern what is true and what is right. Uh, and, and then just, just pray that God would work So I'm just going to be quiet for just a little bit. We're going to pray um, alone, individually, meet with the Lord. And then we're going to come with an expectation that God would speak to us through his word. Okay, so let's pray. And then I'll, I'll kind of close this here in just a second. Father, this morning um, come with just great joy, joy that we can be together in a warm building um, with the word of God in our hands. We come with joy that we can draw near to the Father, as we read in Hebrews just a a second ago, with confidence through Jesus. Um, God, that we can be together with one another, that we can sit around here and talk after the service and love one another and care for one another and just enjoy one another's presence. God, those are all good and gracious gifts from you, and we are thankful for those things. Lord, we're thankful for a chance to sing, a chance to be together. Um, God, it's, it's just mercy toward us, and, and we rejoice over that. Lord, as we now look at these verses, um, God, I, I pray that you would... Um, I pray that you would be with me as I, as I open this, God, that you would be, you would help your word to be uh, exposed clearly. I pray that we would see it. We would see what you have called us to be uh, and how to live and what to do, uh, God. And I, and I pray that that what we learn today and, and the things that you've called us to do would, would move us outwards, that it wouldn't stay here, but that we would be a people who truly are on mission to make disciples in Dalhart and around the world. Um, God, I'm thankful. God, I come with an expectation that you would speak. Uh, God, and I, and I come with a hope that we would submit and obey to you. So, Lord, we come now with our eyes tuned towards you. Our, our, give us ears to hear. God, give us a mind to understand. Uh, soften our hearts, Lord, so that we would believe, um, God, and then give us the courage and the will to obey you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The past four weeks, we've been walking through the Beatitudes. And, uh, As I did, I kind of crushed it into four weeks. We probably could have done it in eight weeks, just to be honest with you, Uh, but we need to press forward a little bit. And as I've kind of walked into these next verses, I've gone, oh yeah, that may have been worth our time to spend a little more time in the Beatitudes because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount flows from the Beatitudes. So so if you don't understand verses two through 12, then the rest of it gets kind of left behind. So on one hand, I'm tempted to back up all the way to chapter five, verse one, and read there, starting there, just to rerun through the Beatitudes before we come into verses 13 through 16, but I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to just remind you, hey, remember the Beatitudes. Kind of let those be floating in the back of your head as we read uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I know these are familiar, pas- this is a familiar passage to you, uh, so, so let's read these, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Jesus says to disciples in verse 13, you are the salt, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, here we are on the backside of the Beatitudes, okay? We've, we've gone through those, and we might have this idea that in order to live out verses uh, 3 through 12, that you should withdraw from the world, right? The best way for me to pursue righteousness and purity of heart and meekness is to just kind of create my own enclave, my own spiritual community, and and just to pursue God together so that way I don't have the fingerprints and the things of the world drawing me back towards it, right? Uh, As a matter of fact, that's why a lot of monk communities exist is because they read Matthew 5, 2 through 12 and said, okay, the only way for me to do this is to withdraw. But immediately following The Beatitudes, what does Jesus do? He says to his followers, he says to his people, he says, man, I have given you an identity and a purpose. Don't withdraw from the world, but engage. And by engaging, you're gonna preserve, you're gonna purify, and you're gonna illuminate a world that is in desperate need of saving. So church, the main point for us this morning is this. You are the manifestation of Jesus to a dark and dying world. You, are the manifestation of Jesus to a dark and dying world. Now, that kind of seems like a little bit of a daunting statement. But if we actually embody the Beatitudes, right? If we're poor in spirit, more in sin, we're controlled by Christ, we're meek. If we're hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're full of mercy, we live out of a pure heart, we're peacemakers to those around us, who are we representing? What are we looking like? We're looking like Jesus. That's what he was. That's, what he, that's who he is. That's what he looked like. So I've got two observations from 13 through 16 this morning and one warning. Okay. So, so the first observation we're going to make is simply the words you are, you are now notice that Jesus doesn't say, go be salt of the earth, go be a light in the world. He says, you are, that's significant and is extremely different from go be. Go be is rooted in an identity that we earn. Has everybody in here seen the movie, The Lion King? Am I going to like, because I'm about to tell you the story plot of The Lion King. So if you haven't heard this, I'm about to ruin it for you. I'm sorry, right? So in The Lion King, we've got Simba and Simba's down, his uncle Scar tricks him to go down into this valley and he's down there and uncle Scar then with his uh, his uh, packed with the hyenas, he gets the hyenas to get the wildebeest to chase them into, into the valley. And so here's Simba, this little baby lion cub, and here comes the wildebeest, and he's trying to survive. Scar goes and gets Simba's dad, Mufasa. Mufasa, you got to save your son. He's going to get run over. Mufasa comes. He saves Simba, but then he trips and falls back down into the valley. Oh no, what's Mufasa going to do? Mufasa's trying to crawl up, and lo and behold, here's Uncle Scar. Ha ha, brother swipes his claw. Mufasa falls down he dies. Tragic moment. Simba sees it happen, runs up to his dad. Oh no, what have I done? My father is dead because I was in a place that I wasn't supposed to be. And what's Uncle Scar do? Window of opportunity. Uncle Scar walks up to Simba. Oh, Simba, what have you done? Everybody's going to find out about who you are and the thing that just happened. Nobody can forgive you for that. So what does Simba do? Simba runs away, runs off, makes best friends with Pumbaa and Timon, some of the greatest characters of all time. Grows up. After a little while, by chance, who does Simba run into? The all-wise Rafiki, the baboon, right? Baboon, he, he kind of picks, Rafiki picks on Simba for a little bit, uh, and Rafiki uh, says, I know your father. And what does Simba say back to Rafiki. Yeah, I, I've got bad news. My dad died a couple of years ago. Wrong. Slaps him in the head with a stick. Runs off. I know your father. And so then Simba's like, wait a minute. No, you don't. He died. And so, so Rafiki's sitting there meditating on this rock. I actually looked up this clip again this week. Uh, and, and he's saying, no, I know your father. I will show him to you. And so he says, follow me. And they go run through this jungle. And Simba's trying to keep up with this baboon. And finally they get to this pond. And all of a sudden, they, you know Rafiki stops and looks back. Shh. He goes back to the grass. He says, look. And look. Simba steps up and he looks in the water. When he looks in the water, what does he see? He sees his own reflection. That's just me, Rafiki. Come on, man. That's, that's, not, that's not my dad. No, no, no. Look closer. So Simba comes back to the water and he looks again. And after a pause of a few seconds and a little bit of Disney magic, what appears? It's the face of Mufasa. Then all of a sudden, this amazing cloud just in the shape of Mufasa shows up. Simba, I am your father. Remember who you are. Remember. All of a sudden, what is Simba able to do because he remembers who he is? He's able to go be the king of the pride land. Now, if Simba would have gone after the death of his father and all the guilt and shame that he was living in, if he would have gone and tried to be the king of the pride land, he would have been functioning out of, I'm trying to earn forgiveness and I'm trying to be good enough and I'm trying to be like my dad was to everybody else. And in that, he would have worn himself out. But instead, what does his dad say? His dad says, you're mine. And because you're mine, you can be king. So now instead of functioning out of, I'm having to earn this, he's functioning out of who he is. Church, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. This is an identity that is not something you earn. This is an identity that God has given to you. Go be is a law that we keep to earn something. And you are is an identity that is given to us. Now, if we seek to earn an identity, what does our view of other people become? Going to the national watermelon convention in a couple weeks, and they don't have a national watermelon farmer of the year award. But just for illustration's sake, let's say I won the national watermelon farmer of the year award. How do you think I would feel about all the other watermelon farmers in the room? I have something to teach you about watermelons. I'm all wise about watermelons because I'm the National Watermelon Farmer of the Year. They aren't as good as me. Couldn't this be said of every other identity that we seek to carry, right? I'm a cowboy, so I'm a little bit better than a farmer. Or I'm a farmer, so I'm a little bit better than a cowboy. Or I'm a stay-at-home mom, so I'm a little bit better than those moms who go to work. Or I'm a mom who works, so I'm a little bit better than those stay-at-home moms. Fill in the blank. As Tim Keller says, any identity that's achieved rather than received, has to be excluding. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, go be. Don't go earn something. Instead, shockingly, he says, you are. This is an identity that is rooted in the love of a father who is in heaven. And this identity calls you out and calls you forward. When Simba remembers who he is, when you remember who you are, you're not functioning for approval or forgiveness, you're living out of approval and forgiveness. So, church, the very first question this morning is Are you? Are you? Are you a son of the father? Are you a daughter of the king? Or are you seeking to earn an identity from God? Are you trying to work for it and just wearing yourself out? Now, let me be clear here for a minute. Who's Jesus speaking to? Who's this for? It's for the disciples. It's for his followers. He's speaking to those who have said, Jesus, I will give it all up just to follow you. I'm gonna leave my nets behind at the boat just to chase after you, Jesus. So then you are specifically for those who belong to Christ. It is for those who have recognized that all of this hard work that they have done, all of this striving is insufficient. And if that is you, if you are working your tail off to try and please God, hear Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have done the work for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Come to Jesus and trust on the work that he did through the cross and resurrection. Submit to his lordship and depend on him. And when you do that, do you know what you find? you find approval of the Father in heaven saying, you are mine. Not approving of you, he's approving of his son. And in Jesus, we find all the approval and satisfaction we need. So the first question for you is, are you his? If you are his, then what? What are you? You're a manifestation of Jesus. You are salt, and you are the light. Now, we might hear that word manifestation and begin to scratch our heads about what that means. Manifestation kind of seems to me to have this, uh, I don't know, kind of spiritual type word. So we hear that, man, manifestation of Jesus, what, what are we talking about there? Well, I hope to show us that to be a manifestation of Jesus means to be like Jesus. And that when people see us in the good works that we do, which we're gonna talk about here in a second, what are they gonna ultimately see? I mean, they're gonna see the hands and feet of Jesus. They're gonna hear the voice of Jesus. Now, two ways in which Jesus says we're a manifestation of him. Very obvious. What are they? Salt and light. Let's talk about salt for a minute. What do we know about salt? Well, we know a lot. Salt does a lot of things. Uh, And you can read a lot of different commentaries that talk about all the ways in which salt is used. And man, maybe Jesus was talking about, you know, salt does this, and this this is what he's talking about here. But overwhelmingly, um, both contextually in this passage and if you zoom out and kind of look at the rest of the scriptures, I think, uh, and so do a lot of other people who are smarter than me, I think what Jesus is referring to here are two primary ways in which we're salt. Salt does two things primarily that Jesus is talking about here. Preservation and purification. Preservation and purification. Now there's several Old Testament passages that talk about that. Um, Isaiah is one of them. Um, Jesus, I think, talks about it later on, I think it's in Mark, he talks about uh, you are salted through fire, which is talking about being pure, the, how the fire of life, the struggles of life are going to purify you. So, so, so that's kind of what they use as, as arguments for what salt is and how it talks about purifying and preserving. But as far as an illustration goes to help us understand, I, I think the thing that's most helpful for me, at least, is thinking of a piece of meat. Right, So think about meat back in Jesus' day. They'd cut it. They couldn't go stick it in the freezer and hold it for the next few months. So what would they do? Take salt. They'd rub that salt all over that piece of meat. So that way it would hold and it would last for a long time. How does salt preserve meat? Well, it kills, it purifies the bacteria on there that would grow and cause the decay process to begin. So, So you see how it's both preserving and purifying at the same time. What does this mean for us? Church, ultimately what this is, is a call to mission. One look at the news and you can see that our world is dying and decaying. Things are falling apart. They're rotting, right? Uh, This week, church schools go on lockdown because of an active shooter threat. Uh, You can go look in the news What about both of our presidential candidates, leading presidential candidates right now, are under some sort of uh, legal investigation, not to mention the dozens of other senators and representatives that are in the same boat. So we we can look at our school system and our government, and in both places we can go, problems. There's problems. Doesn't matter which side of the aisle you want to sit on, there's problems. We live in a world where uh, things like abortion aren't only demanded, but actually celebrated. I mean we could go on I'm not going to be a doomsday guy but in a world like that who does God choose to be a preserving and purifying agent you you This, as Paul Tripp said, is not just a commission for pastors of outreach, ministry leaders, church workers, or full-time foreign missionaries. This is the life calling of everyone who calls Jesus Lord and Savior. Church, if Christ is Lord over your life, then you are the salt of the earth. You are the preserving and purifying agent that God has placed exactly where he wants to be, a manifestation of all he is and does. It's not something else. Jesus says, the salt and the light. It's not not the government. It's not the school system. It's you. Now, I spent all week thinking about, okay, we're the salt. How how do we be salt? Sorry about that. How do we be salt? What does Jesus, what specific steps does Jesus give us for being salt in the world? He doesn't. He leaves it totally open-ended. He never says what we are to do to be purifying agents. Now, I think the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to unpack some of that for us. But Dr. Chuck Quarles says Jesus' emphasis on his disciples' unique ability to purify the world suggests that they do so by means other than mere moral protest, political involvement, or social activism. Any person can do that. And if these were the strategies that Jesus had in mind for transforming society, he could not have said to his disciples that they were the, that is the one and only salt of the earth. If Jesus' disciples alone are salt, he must be urging them to undertake a unique ministry of moral transformation that only they can fulfill. Now, I'm not saying, and neither is Dr. Quirrell saying, and nor is Jesus saying, that his followers shouldn't be involved in politics or socially active. In fact, I think the call to be salt in the world is a call to engage the world. It is a call to be involved in the social and political sphere. But, We don't do so with the belief that our politics or that our social activities are going to be what brings social, what brings purification. What brings purification is Christ in you and Christ through you. That's what brings purification and preservation. You go be the salt and the light. You go be a follower of Jesus in the spheres of influence he's placed you to be and by doing that, you will bring purification and preservation. God has called his people to be the primary way in which this world is preserved. Not the government, not the school systems. He's called you. He's called the church. How do we do that? You can only purify if you are pure. Do you see how this flows right out of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart. How do we get a pure heart? Where does that come from? That comes from Jesus. Jesus. He gives us a pure heart with new desires. And as you live according to who he's made you to be and every sphere of influence that he's placed you in, do you know what the rest of the world is going to see? A manifestation of Jesus. So you don't walk into your places of work or your homes or your gyms or your schools or the coffee shop just seeking to maintain the status quo. No, like salt rubbed on a piece of meat, do you know what you do? You rub up on those around you. You seek to live in a way that doesn't just preserve, but transforms culture and corrupt human side societies that you live in. You seek to be a peacemaker and a mercy giver. I was listening to uh, a sermon on this passage by Lloyd-Jones this week. And he used an illustration that I've actually lived out um, on multiple occasions. Have you ever been in a scenario when you can hear or be around a bunch of people and their talk is pretty dirty? And then all of a sudden, you walk up into that scenario, and they're like, oh, hey, we better not talk like this anymore. We better better back off. Have you ever done that? I, it's been, I've done that. I can remember several times in my life when I'd walk up, maybe it was high school, even since then, uh, walk up in foul language, and then I walk up, and I'm like, oh, hey, it's the preacher guy. Back off a little bit, right? Now, you know what my response has always been in a scenario like that? It's always been, hey, just be yourself, man. It's okay. Just be yourself. And... And I think that's okay. I, I do want people to feel comfortable around me, right? I, I, do, want, I do want people to be able to be them, their true selves. But what Lloyd-Jones pointed out in his illustration is that when, a pe- when people stop sinning, when a Christian walks into the room, it's, that is the Christian preserving and purifying. Right? So so out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So so your language, when it's filthy and foul, is the degradation and falling apart of your heart. It's the dying and the decaying of it. And so when you step into a situation, all of a sudden people stop talking like that. That dying and decaying has faded away. Right? Now that doesn't fix their biggest problem. That doesn't that doesn't stop it that doesn't fix their greatest need, but when somebody says, hey, we better not act like that because they're here, what they have really just done is they've opened the door for you to be a peacemaker. They've opened the door for you to step in and go, hang on a minute, why do you think you got to stop talking like that around me? What is it about me that makes you do that? Because here's the deal, I'm, I'm a lot worse in my own heart than what your language is, but what is it that does that? Do you see how all of a sudden, if you have that mindset and that perspective, you've, you've just witnessed, you've just opened the door for them to go, oh, hang on a minute. What we're doing is wrong and that's, that's a problem. So church, our presence as salt purifies and preserves and when we live rightly, do you know what it does? It actually opens the door for light to shine in. So the second way we're a manifestation of Jesus is through being light. Now, this is also a equally shocking statement, right? Throughout the book of Isaiah, we opened up with Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 through 3. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there is the promise through the prophet that the Messiah is going to be a light in the darkness. Um, Isaiah 61 through 3 talks about it. Actually, if you look back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, that is a quote of Isaiah 42, 7. Uh, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, you can flip up ahead to the book of John in the New Testament, and you can go to John 1 through, I don't know, the whole book, and John just continues to pick up on this theme of light shining in the darkness. Ultimately, John chapter 8, verse 12, what does Jesus say? And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Who is Matthew chapter 4, the book of John, and Isaiah all pointing towards the light? Who is it? It's Jesus. Yet here we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and who does Jesus say the light is? He says it's you. Jesus calls his followers light of the world. Now, Jesus isn't placing us on par with him, right? You're not Jesus. You're not. But when we live the righteous life that Jesus has called us to do, do you know what we are? We're a manifestation of him. We are a reflection of him. We are the light of him. So what does this mean for us? This means that we should live a life that looks just like Jesus's. We're going to embody the same characteristics and care and concern that he had for those around him. It becomes obvious to me why the Beatitudes are on the front end of this. Jesus is more concerned about who people are than what they do. That's why he addresses all those Beatitudes before he gives any practical steps. As we seek to become those things, we are the light of the world. And when the world sees us, they see that the light has shone in our own hearts. Now, the implications for Christ's call for us to be the light of the world are huge. Again, I'm gonna quote Paul Tripp here. He says, God has uniquely placed you in the exact situations, locations, and relationships to make the light of the world visible and concrete. You are the look of Christ's face. You are the tone of his voice. You are the touch of his hands. You are the physical representation of his light in a dark world. What an incredible call. You are to be just like Jesus To everyone around. So, what does it mean to be the light of the world? Jesus tells us in verses 15 and 16 some things there, 14, 15, 16, that I think are helpful to see. First, a light is like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. One of the great things about living in Dalhart, Texas, America, is you can watch your dog run away for days, right? There's no trees. It's dark at night. You can see the cities ahead for 50 miles away, right? And if you can't see the cities, you can at least see the glow of the city lights. You will always know where a town is. Likewise, those who have the light cannot be hidden, the glow from them can be seen from miles away. And when you are filled with Christ and you live a life in submission to and dependence on Him, the righteousness of Christ, the mercy of God, and the pureness of your heart will emanate from you to those around you. Second way we see light uh, in the way we can be light is the light of the world is like a lamp that is put on a lampstand. Now, I want to try an illustration here. This may be a little cheesy, but all right, Krista, you get the lights. Plan for this today. So all That's why all the shades are dim. All right. Perfect. All right. Let's say if I can quit shaking. This is my light. I'm the light of the world. Perfect. All right. I wish this room was pitch black. It'd be great if it was at the moment. Sorry, Kyle. You have to be careful. Don't trip over the steps. Let's say I'm the light of the room. We're in a, let's just say we're in a snowstorm and your flashlights on your phones don't work for a minute and it's pitch black in here and I'm the only guy with light. And I take my light back here. Oh, no, don't go out. And I, I stand back here like this, and I'm good, right? I can see around me, I'm, I'm warm, I got the glow of the fire back here. I can see there's no boogeyman, you know, I can see what's on the ground down here. I will not step on your viola, so I'll be very careful here. I, I'm safe, but you guys are cold in the dark. You, you want light? You got to come find me. Good luck finding your way up here with all those steps and all this stuff on the ground. You can't see it, right? You're just going to have to listen to me. But I, I'm a nice guy, you just got to come up here a little ways, okay? Come on a little bit further, just be real careful. So I could take my light and I could do this with my light, and that, that would not be good for you. Or, you know, I could take my light up here. It doesn't die, don't die, don't die. I could take my light and I could shine it right here. Now, if it was pitch black in this room, all of a sudden, this little bitty flicker, it's not much, what all would you be able to see? Well, you could probably see the steps down here. You would know where where the point is that's safe. You would know where to go, little kids that are afraid of the dark. You would know the place to go to the light. You could see the things around you, right? You could feel the warmth from it. So, so if I take my light here, it shines, and, it, and if this room was dark, even with this little light, the glow would actually reach to the edges of the room. You would be able to see just enough. Maybe, maybe not fully, but you would be able to see this whole room would have some glow to it just because of this little light. The other thing I could do with my light is I could stick it under a, a basket so that nobody can see it, Right? Obviously, I'm basically stealing the illustration that Jesus uses. Okay, Christine, turn the lights back on. Here's my cheesy illustration for the day. Now, this is not my illustration. It's Jesus' illustration. What's the point of all of this? I think there's a lot of things that we can unpack from this. Church, sometimes I'm afraid that we like to take our light and we like to go hide in the corner. Sure, we're good people. I will explain to you how to get around this room you know what? I might even set my light down and come help you up the steps. I'll be a good person. I'll help you navigate the treacherous stage or the choppy waters of life, but rarely do we let our light shine so that people can see exactly their own situation and their own state. See, when the light shone in our hearts, what did we see? I mean, we we saw we were in a bad spot. But we didn't just see we were in a bad spot. We saw why we were in a bad spot. We saw that we were the problem, our own hearts were the problem with what was going on. We saw exactly how poor of spirit we, are, we are, were because we saw the light. So, if we are to be the light of the world, this means that we're to shine the light into the dark places where all of this darkness is rooted. And where is the darkness of the world rooted? In people's hearts. So do you see how this ties in to being salt, how you have to rub up next to that? The only way to be in the darkness and let the light shine is to rub up next to it, is to make time and to take time to truly get to know people. I heard a podcast the other day that talked about how conversation for Christians should flow. It should go from social, we can talk and be friends and talk about the weather and all the fun things of life and how the Chiefs are going to beat the 49ers today, right? Can I get an amen? No? Yes? Hudson? No? All right. We could talk about all the social things, and that's good, but it goes from the social then to the serious. Let me talk about you and what's going on in your family, and your uncle passed away, and let me pray for you, and and she fell, and we need to care for her, right? Those are serious things, And, and typically, Christians, we think, man, you know what? Social, serious, we can do those two things, but you know what we tend to leave out? We tend to leave out the spiritual. Hey, I know this is going on, but why is this going on? let me let the light shine in the darkness of your heart. So for us to be light, our conversation has to move past social and serious towards the spiritual. But what does it say about us if we're the type of people who are happy to stick in the corner with our back turned and stand hovering around our light? How do you feel about me in that moment? Right, it's a dark room, kiddos. How do you you feel about that? Walker, you like that idea? It's a good idea. Give me a thumbs up. Come on now. One of the first questions that popped into my head, uh, we talked about Bible studies more in Sunday school about making observations. One of the first observations I had was this. Is it even possible to be a Christian and live in such a way that the world doesn't know? Because that's what taking our light and hiding in the corner is, right? No one knows that I'm a Christian because I'm just going to hide my light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Church, a disciple who does not glorify God and draw others to him by exhibiting divine righteousness is like a light that doesn't shine. It's like water that isn't wet. It's like a fire that isn't hot. A Christian who doesn't let this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, is truly an oxymoron. So, Are you seeking to live in such a way that your light shines brightly before all men or are you keeping it to yourself? If I was to walk into your spheres of influence today, would all of those people that know you, work with you, live with you, would they say, oh, absolutely, an identifying marker of who this person is is a follower of Jesus? Or would they just say, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. He's like the rest of us. Good worker, great work ethic. Or would one of the first things they say, Oh man, he loves Jesus. He's not like me, he loves Jesus. We can hide our light, and in a way we can be seen for what we truly are, or we can take our light and we can place it on a stand so that it gives light to all those in the house. Now, I thought this was an interesting statement, right? They don't take the light and go put it in the corner so it's out of the way so that nobody trips over it. No, we put it on a lamp stand so that it lights up the whole room. Do you see the intentionality of the location of the light? I think what Jesus is doing here, I think what's happening, this symbolism is is, uh, symbolizing the responsibility of Christ's followers to maximize their ministry. It's for them to live in such a way that their light shines the furthest and reaches the most possible people that it possibly could. Now, this doesn't mean that we just chase after people we're comfortable with or we're like. What this means is that we see all people as image bearers, who are worthy of honor and dignity and grace and mercy and love and time and attention and then we pursue them in hopes of becoming a peacemaker making that peace between them and God are you being intentional in pursuing those you come into contact with and letting your light shine now what does jesus say what happens when we let our light shine for all to see well Put it on a lampstand, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So clearly, giving, doing good works is part of letting your light shine. It is both a witness, something you speak, and doing the good work. This reminds me, of Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which who? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, in Christ, God has prepared for us good works to walk in. What's the source of the good works? It's God. And since God is the source, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we might stop and go, okay, I'm cool with good works. But what are the good works we're supposed to go do? I think you know. I I think it's contextual to each person and every job that you do and every sphere of life you're in. But I think you know, in the heart of those good works is to do what? Is to be salt and be light right where God has placed you. It's to be a manifestation of who he is in every area of your life so that the preserving, purifying, illuminating grace and glory of God might be seen to a dark and dying world. Church, you are a manifestation of Jesus in every place you go. How are you representing him? Now, two observations, salt and light, and then a strong warning. You've noticed I've skipped over the first half of verse 13. We've looked at what it means to be salt and light, but the question is, what if we don't? Right, I just asked the question a second ago, is there a way in which we can live in which we could be a Christian, but no one would really know? Like, what if we aren't salt, or what if we aren't light? What if we choose to hide it? Is it possible for a Christian person to be a Christian and just blend in with the rest of the world? Jesus has a strong warning. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How can salt lose its taste? Science today tells us that pure salt can't lose its taste. It's pure. It is salt. It's a very stable element. So if salt can't lose his taste, what's Jesus talking about here? Is he maybe talking about people losing their salvation? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? In Jesus' day, salt had a lot of other impurities in it. It wasn't pure salt. So it might have seemed that salt lost its saltiness, but really the impurities would have overcome what little bit of salt was in there. What Jesus is doing in verse 13, the second half of it, what he's teaching is that those who claim to be his disciples, when they fail to be pure and when they fail to be salt, their potential for changing the world is permanently damaged and it can't be restored. Guys, when we when we blend in with society, when we look like the rest of the world around us, when we not only tolerate decay and darkness, but we actually participate in it and we enjoy it, when we identify with it, our saltiness falls away, fades away. It becomes impure. And while the divine forgiveness of God can forgive that consequence, it doesn't eliminate the temporal consequence of our sin. The hypocrisy of those who do not practice what they preach does lasting harm to one's Christian witness. And what good is salt that blends in with the rest of the world? Luke chapter 14, 35 said it is of no use for the soil or the manure pile. It brings a little understanding to what Jesus is getting at here. It means it has no life-giving properties. We put 3200 down on our corn, right? We pump it through the pivot. It's nitrogen. It is a salt-based fertilizer. And if you put it out if you, just in the right amount, what does it do? It brings life. But if you dump it all in one spot, do you know what happens? It's a bunch of salt piled on the ground. It sterilizes it. It kills it. Jesus is saying that the Christian who doesn't practice what they preach is, wor- is not even worth the manure pile. There is no life giving properties to that person. What are they worth? Man, they should be thrown on the road. What happens when you dump salt on a piece of ground? Nothing. It's dead. That is what happens to salt that is not saltiness. To be salt of Jesus brings preservation and purification but to claim Jesus as Lord and then not live a life that reflects who he is actually does harm it brings death people become sterilized to the light of God shining into their own life what about the hidden light what about that light that we put under the basket right what what is that light man to hide your light means you're ashamed of who you are it's to say hey You can talk how you were, no problem. Don't act act any different around me and not seek to bring light into that darkness. It's to be ashamed of the gospel. And what does Jesus say later on, for those who are ashamed of me on earth, what does he say? Well, he will be before the Father in heaven. I'll be ashamed of you. It's not just shameful. It shows a lack of care. It shows a lack of concern for God's creation and God's people. It's foolish. If you put a light under a basket, right? if I took our little mint baskets back there in the back and I stuck that candle under it, what's gonna happen in a few minutes? It's gonna catch on fire. It's gonna be destructive. It's gonna burn down. We're all at risk. Like salt on the road, fire under a basket brings destruction. Church, God has made us salt and light. You are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. I'm pushing time. I've got two last really quick observations, so I'm just adding this on to the back end of a sermon here. That word you is a second person plural. So when Jesus says you, he is looking individually at his disciples, saying you, but he's also looking collectively at them, saying you. Liberty, you are the salt, you are the light. Does our community is it preserved and purified because of Liberty Baptist Church? Is our, is our community affected because of us, because of how we reach it? You, us, are. But it doesn't just say the salt of Dalhart. It doesn't say the light of Dalhart. What does it say? The whole world. What is the expectation of the maximization of Jesus' people, that it reaches the ends of the earth. So I want to celebrate Missions Conference this week because giving is a way we can do that. But it is our expectation of what God would do in and through us that it would reach the nations because that is who God has called his followers to be, salt and light to the ends of the earth. Church, I'm reminded of our candlelight service here on Christmas Eve, which is where I stole that little candle back there from earlier. What happens when we stand in here and all the lights are off and we light our candles and we hold them up? The whole room is lit up. You can see everything. The glow from the candles is beautiful, right? It's a beautiful moment. One of my favorite times of the year is a Christmas Eve candlelight service. Church, may liberty be a light in the darkness. May we hold our light up so that the whole community can see the death and dying decay and may they see the preservation that comes through our Lord and Savior. May we intentionally seek to engage with those with whom we come into contact with the light of the gospel. May we live out the beatitudes and walk in the good works that our Father has set before us so that he may be glorified. Church, you are the manifestation of Jesus to a dark and dying world? How will you this week seek to represent salt and light? What will you do this week so that people know that man, when they encounter you, they hear the words of Jesus and they see the person of Jesus and they have the hands of Jesus. Is that you? Are you his or are you yours? Living for your own purposes in your own kingdom. Church, God has a great call for us. It's one that is heavy, but it's one that he empowers. May we walk in the light that he has shown in our lives. Let's pray. Father, you're good. Man, that you would shine light into our own dark hearts and that you would redeem us. God, that you would make us your people, that you would make us your sons and daughters. God, I pray this morning for those that have not turned to the light, have not seen the light of Jesus. God, I pray that you would work in their hearts and minds, God, and that you would, by the power of your spirit, convict them and call them to yourself. May we repent of our own selfishness. May we repent of hiding our light, of not being salt to those around us. And God, may we now live with an intentionality that maximizes the manifestation of Jesus. God, may win our coworkers, may win our children, may win our families, may when we go to the grocery store or the gas station or any of these things, God, may people see Jesus. May that be true of liberty. May, May when the rest of Dalhart looks at liberty, may they look back and go, that's where Jesus is. God, do a work in us. Do a work through us because of the work you've done in us. We love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.